Welcome to the Gov Innovator Podcast. I'm Andy Feldman. We continue our focus on expanding college access and affordability with a conversation focused on states with Michelle Miller Adams from the Upjohn Institute and the author of the recent book, The Path to Free College. Here's a clip. These programs exist in states of all different kinds of complexions, red, blue, and purple. And it's interesting to see public money in very conservative places going into these tuition-free college programs, especially when it proved so difficult to get that passed at the national level. An important area of innovation within higher education policy in recent years has been tuition-free college policies to make college more affordable and accessible. Our interview last week with Professor Elizabeth Bell of Florida State gave us a valuable overview, and today we continue the topic with a specific focus on what states are doing. To do that, we're joined by Dr. Michelle Miller-Adams. She's the co-director of the Upjohn Institute's Place-Based Research Initiative and is a national expert on tuition-free college initiatives. Her latest book is titled The Path to Free College in Pursuit of Access, Equity, and Prosperity, which was published last year by Harvard Education Press. Michelle, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much, Andy. It's very nice to be with you. Start us off, Michelle, if you would, by giving us the landscape of what states are doing with tuition-free college policies. Sure. Um, Elizabeth Bell last week gave a a really great introduction to the Promise model, and she noted in some of her comments that this model really originated at the local level. Uh, The kind of modern free college movement dates back to 2005 and my home community of Kalamazoo. Uh, But after about a a decade of innovation or almost a decade of innovation, you started to see the emergence of state-level tuition-free college programs, which are often called college promise programs. The first of those was in Tennessee with the Tennessee Promise in 2014, and the model has spread pretty rapidly over the past five or six years. Uh, It it depends on how you define these programs, but there are about 20 of them. There are are many other statewide programs that offer financial aid, either based on uh, financial need or academic merit. But this more universal kind of approach that you've seen in the Promise Movement, um, you can say there are about 20 states that are doing it. It's equally true for state level programs as for local programs that all the programs are different from each other in um, sometimes small and sometimes big ways. Uh, Tennessee has served as a model for many other states, but there are a whole set of programs that are much more restrictive than Tennessee in terms of who they provide scholarships to. The Tennessee model is a universal model where everyone in the state is eligible provided they're a resident and graduate from a Tennessee high school. There are some um, modest community service requirements, but there's no minimum high school GPA. You can attend a wide range of two-year institutions, community colleges, and then Tennessee has these colleges of applied technology as well. And you can study anything you want there. Tennessee later on, a few years later, innovated with a, a similar program for adults called Tennessee Reconnect, that allows adults without college degrees to basically benefit in the same way. 
So as I said, many states have uh, replicated this model. You see these programs in Rhode Island and in Hawaii and all kinds of places. Uh, some have added some GPA requirements for, for high school participants. Oregon has done that. Maryland has done that. A few have uh, income ceilings to try to target benefits toward lower income students. And then there's also a handful of states that have gone in a much more restrictive direction where there may be some barriers to entering the program, but you have to uh, study a high demand field. Uh, what's really interesting, and I know we'll explore further, Andy, is that these programs exist in states of all different kinds of complexions, red, blue, and purple. And it's interesting to see public money in very conservative places going into these tuition-free college programs, especially when it proved so difficult to get that passed at the national level. I think that last point, Michelle, is going to be really of interest to listeners Tell us a bit more about your observations. How did those purple and red states get these policies passed when that might have been unexpected? Absolutely. The motivations for starting these college promise programs, both locally and at a state level, uh, are, are rarely clearly articulated or disentangled from each other. Some of them are really about reducing college costs, Others main, uh, aim primarily to uh, reach underserved populations, and many others are rooted in the idea of creating a better trained workforce. And again, you can't generalize completely because there are some exceptions, but most of these state programs, and I would say all of the state programs in more conservative places are rooted in this workforce rationale. They enjoy strong support from the business community. They're designed to help states meet what are sometimes called their attainment goals, a certain percentage of the population that will have degrees or credentials based in the understanding that to be economically competitive, states need to have a higher percentage of people with college degrees or credentials than they do now. Most of these programs, particularly those rooted in this workforce rationale, focus on the community college or uh, vocational uh, technology college sector because they're seeking to generate more degrees or credentials in uh, fields where there's high workforce demand. And that is often um, people who have uh, degrees or credentials short of a bachelor's. It's a really important observation that you've been describing, Michelle, which is that the Promise Movement, the Free College Movement, has both goals of equity and strengthening the workforce that enables it to resonate across political divides, at least in a bunch of states so far. Yeah, it, it absolutely does. And, and you saw this very much in Tennessee. You would not, and, and in my home state of Michigan as well, you would not get a lot of uh, broad-based political support from those particular legislatures if you led with an equity message. But by emphasizing the need to broaden the pipeline of people who are getting trained, driven by workforce needs, a state does de facto uh, include those populations that were not previously going to college. So it has these equity enhancing effects. In Michigan, uh, Michigan is a, an interesting case because I think it's, it's well known nationally that the Democratic governor and the Republican legislature rarely agree on anything, 
But in the case of this Michigan Reconnect program, the governor was able to get legislative buy-in and funding for a free community college program for adults without college degrees. And she did it mainly through uh, working with the state's business sector, which pushed its Republican allies in the legislature to support this. And um, the people who have been benefiting from it are those who previously did not have access to higher education. So it's having that equity effect while it's being billed as a workforce development um, project. Important coalition building for sure. A final question for you, Michelle. You've noted that both New Mexico and Louisiana have very new programs that have been passed, uh, but very different programs. So it gives us a brief case study in different approaches. Tell us about that, if you would. Yes, I'm, I'm happy to do that. And these two case studies really serve to show you the, the diversity of programs that are included in this state college promise landscape. Uh, in Louisiana, there is a new program for adults, uh, people who are 21 and over who do not have college degrees. They can attend a uh, an in-state community college and they need to major in one of five in-demand occupations. Um, it's a little tricky to administer a program that requires in-demand uh, majors because of course what's in demand changes over time and also um, students may in fact uh, think they want to study one thing and, and get to college and discover they actually want to study something else. Uh, it is also a last dollar program, meaning that this uh, tuition support is awarded after students have already used their Pell Grants. So in practice, it may not bring a lot of uh, new financial resources to students, although it can be beneficial in other ways in getting more students to file their FAFSAs and receive the Pell Grants to which they were entitled. So if you turn to New Mexico, you can see some pretty stark differences. New Mexico's program, which was signed into law last week, uh, is available to all residents of the state with no age restriction. So recent high school graduates or adults can use it. Students can use it at any public two-year or four-year college in the state. So uh, a lot of flexibility around where you go and what you study and what kind of degree or credential you get. And finally, this is very rare in the Promise Movement. This is a first dollar scholarship. So the uh, tuition-free access is awarded first, and then students who are Pell eligible are able to retain use of their Pell Grants to pay for the other costs of college, which are often much higher than, uh, than tuition. So I think that the New Mexico program has some pretty strong potential for enhancing equity in that it's going to bring new dollars uh, to, to all the students who benefit from it. But I should point out that the outlier here is New Mexico. That is an unusually generous program in this state landscape. Whereas Louisiana's program looks a lot more like programs that are uh, in place in, in many other states. And um, it is certainly going to benefit those students who are able to take advantage of it. And it is a step in the right direction. Dr. Michelle Miller-Adams from the Upjohn Institute. Michelle, I learned a lot. I really appreciate you sharing your insights on the podcast with us. And I know our listeners do too. It's been a pleasure, Andy. Thank you. Thank you. 